Jesus Christ, thank you for raising from the dead. Oh Lord, we are here this morning to lift up your name, to sing your praises. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I don't rearrange the furniture every week. It just seemed rather apt given this passage. So we are in need of resurrection transformation. We are in need of resurrection transformation. And this isn't too difficult to prove in our society. 58% of American children don't have a father in their home. There's an opiate epidemic that is sweeping our country right now. Nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. And the percentage of people who are taking their own lives continues to go up year after year. And if you know my story, you know that I've been personally touched by several of these statistics. My guess is that if we were to turn to our neighbor and talk about these things, which we're not going to do, uh, but my guess is that these statistics would be rather close to some of you as well. You see, the world is in desperate need of resurrection, transformation. We need to know the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And not just our world, but our neighborhoods. And not just our neighborhoods, but our very hearts as well. My heart and your heart. Our hearts cry out for this resurrection transformation. In fact, as you were hearing the scriptures read this morning, did not your heart just burn within you? Isn't that a community you want to be a part of? Isn't that friends you want to have or the way that you relate to God, isn't that what you want to have? In our Acts and our Psalm reading, we saw loneliness transforming into unity. We saw hoarding turning into generosity. And then in our epistle reading, we saw darkness turning to light. We saw a community who was lying being turned into a community who tells the truth. And we saw a community filled with guilt turn into a community filled with fellowship. And in our gospel reading, we saw fear transform into peace. We saw hiding turn into power. And we saw unbelief turn into belief. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms lives. And the resurrection isn't just some goofy vision that some guys had a long time ago. This wasn't a a mystical experience or some kind of psychological epiphany. It wasn't a bad pizza dream that the apostles were having. This was a real, tangible, bodily, resurrected Christ who they were interacting with. The New Testament writers absolutely insist on this reality. We hugged him. We ate with him. We put our hands in his side. We felt the wounds. We touched him. The New Testament is written by people who absolutely knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And they want you to know him too. They want your life to be absolutely transformed by Jesus Christ too. So this morning we're going to be turning back to that Easter day. Like I said at the beginning of the service, we love to talk about Easter. I think there's like six weeks in Easter we're going to be going through. 50 days at least. And so I want us to turn back to Easter we're going to be looking at the, um, at the gospel passage. We're going to be looking at ground zero for the resurrection here. We're going to see what we can learn from the cosmic power that's here. 
for ourselves, for the sake of ourselves, and for the sake of those who God has placed around us. So it's still the first day. Mary had just encountered Jesus Christ earlier in the day, and she had gone and told the disciples what had happened. But the disciples are still freaked out a little bit. They don't quite know what to expect on this day. In fact, they're still hiding behind locked doors. Yet in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their trembling and their hiding, and perhaps even their shame, because that weekend didn't look too great for them either. But in the midst of this, Jesus decides to to kick off the first church service. What better time than now to gather and have church? It's the first day. It's Sunday. And Jesus comes and he stands in the midst of them. Jesus, the word incarnate, is proclaimed. And he shows them the significance of his wounds, the mysteries that are there. And then he speaks peace over the disciples. He calms their nerves and he blesses them. The other gospel writers say that perhaps there was a meal that happened at this place. You know, undoubtedly, the body of Christ was taken that day, quite literally. And Jesus equips them with the Holy Spirit. He breathes new life into them and commissions them to go out into the world. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, he says. And it's remarkable. He gives them the authority to forgive sins. The very thing that the religious leaders hated Jesus for, he's now telling his disciples that they have that same authority. My, my. Well, the kingdom of God here is breaking forth. Just as God breathed life into a pile of dirt in the garden a long time ago and then told it to go and name the animals, to bring order to new creation, to the creation, now God is doing it again. He's breathing new life into his people again and telling them to go out into the world, proclaim God's new order, that peace has come. He tells them to go out and save sinners. You know, you think that Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus, would have had all the time in the world, you know, before he starts sending them out to do these big things. But he doesn't spare us a second at all. He doesn't waste any time. He gets to work immediately. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be at that very first church service? The first day of first days? What in the world did they talk about? Did Jesus leave? Did he disappear after giving them the Holy Spirit? Did anyone have the audacity to ask him what Saturday was like? Did Jesus provide any other teachings or encouragements? I wish I could have been there. Don't you? Would it have been marvelous to be in that room then? Do you know who else wishes that he was there on that day? Thomas. Yeah, Thomas sure does. Like, where in the world was Thomas? All of his brothers are there except for Thomas, right? Did he have bad luck? Did he need some alone time? You know, maybe he's an extreme introvert and, you know, surely the weekend was extremely intense for him. But we need to be careful in throwing too much judgment on Thomas, which the church has tended to do over the years. Kind of reminds me of the question that's asked, who sinned, this man or his buddies, that he shouldn't be here on this day, on the first church service? could imagine Jesus perhaps answering that. Well, Thomas wasn't here so that God's grace may be revealed in deeper ways. Grace that you and I get to partake in and get to enjoy. So eventually the apostles, they go 
They find Thomas. They tell Thomas what happened, and Thomas does not believe them. Unless I see the marks and place my fingers into his hands and place my, my hand into his side, I will never believe, Thomas declares. I want to see the evidence for myself, Thomas says. Do you know what I love about Thomas? He's just like me and you, right? I mean, he is this great empiricist. He's a firm believer of the scientific method, you know, centuries before the scientific method was even invented. I imagine Thomas and Richard Dawkins getting together and saying, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Or maybe that year, that first Easter, also happened to fall on April Fool's Day, and Thomas wanted nothing to do with it. You'll know, it took, it took me all of my effort to avoid making an April Fool's Day joke last week. I was this close to doing it, but I, I didn't. Popped up today for, for you fine folks. So, thank God for Thomas's doubting, right? Because it's just a gift to the church. Thomas says what many of us are only thinking secretly in our hearts. And the apostles, the other thing that I love here too, is that the apostles, they don't give up on poor Thomas. They still hang out with this guy. Even though he missed out on the first church service, that's fine. But they let Thomas come and hang out with them. And can you imagine the obnoxious questions that Thomas keeps asking them? Come on, guys, stop it, stop it. You, you know, I, I've heard you guys, you can put this to rest. Stop saying this. The other apostles were probably quite annoyed by him. Here he is, getting under their skin. Here he is, challenging their own experiences over and over again. I had a buddy recently who said that he changed Bruce Willis's tire. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that's, this is crazy. He's like, no, seriously, I changed Bruce Willis's tire. I was driving down the highway, a car pulled over, and I got out to help this man, and it was Bruce Willis. And I'm like, this is, this is a lame joke. Like, put this to bed. But sure enough, the next day, there was a headline uh, where Bruce Willis was declaring that Olathe, Kansas is the nicest place on earth because someone got out and changed my tire. So the Apostle Thomas is just saying, no, this surely did not happen. And the Apostles put up with this for an entire week. A whole week this goes on. Well, there's good news here. Sunday is always coming. Sunday always happens. The text tell us that eight days later, and they, they count the present day, so that would have been the following Sunday. They count the days differently than we do. But eight days later, Jesus decides it's time for church again. And so the apostles, they come and they're, they're gathered again, and Jesus again stands in the middle of them. It's time to have church again. He speaks peace over the disciples. A lot of the same things occur again. They partake with Jesus. But then not only does Jesus speak peace, but he speaks grace to Thomas. Place your fingers in my hands, Jesus says. Place your hands into my side. Jesus, in his grace, meets Thomas word by word through his doubts. And then he gives him a challenge. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe, but believe. Jesus has given Thomas credible, extraordinary evidence here. And do you see how Thomas or exclaims back? He says, my Lord and my God. 
my Lord and my God. So this is the highest of all the confessions in the Gospels of who Jesus is. And it's saved for the last of the fourth Gospel by doubting Thomas. Sort of acting as a big culmination to our Gospel accounts. My Lord and my God. Lord, speaking to Jesus' full humanity, his messiahship, his kingship. My God, it speaks to Christ's divinity. He is the word made flesh, Yahweh incarnate. And Thomas doesn't say, you are Lord and you are God, but he personalizes it. My Lord and my God. This is a personal experience, not just an ascent to knowledge, but a personal faith that Thomas is, is stating here. Thomas's life has been transformed by the resurrection. He goes from, I will never believe, to my Lord and my God. And Jesus, you can almost, again, hear the laughter in his voice. You're amused? Or he's, he's like, you, you believe because of this, Thomas? He, and then he chooses to turn his attention to you and to me, to the doubters, to the skeptics, to the empiricists, to the moderns. Jesus turns his attention to you and me. He said, blessed are those who even though they have not seen, still believe. Jesus admits that perhaps those of us here living 2,000 years later, perhaps maybe we have it more difficult than the apostles do. And perhaps Jesus is suggesting here that, that even the belief that you and I experience is perhaps more worthy of celebration than what the apostles and even the early church had. I want to be careful there, but I think what Jesus is saying here is that there's a special blessing for those who believe yet do not see. For those who cry out, my Lord and my God. So I have some friends who are part of a, a book study, and they were shocked to, to be a part of this book study and see that there were some, some pastors who were also here. Um, not that that's shocking in and of itself. There's enough pastors out there in the world, right? But what was shocking is that these pastors were discussing whether or not the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ actually mattered. And they were thinking, hmm, so would my life have to be transformed because of this? Would I still need to live a virtuous life if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? One would say yes and one would say no. But we have to insist that Christ raised from the dead. You see, it's no, it's no wonder that the denominations out there that are denying that Jesus rose from the dead are absolutely plummeting in their attendance. I mean, you just have to look at the statistics and you see this. As soon as the pastors and the priests of a denomination say that the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't matter, why go? What else matters? What is significant about going to church other than just having a, a good social party? And I love you people, you're great people, but if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, I don't know what we're doing here. You know? Going to church doesn't make sense without the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, you and I are in need of resurrection transformation. If the resurrection is merely a metaphor, then our transformation is just a facade. Faith becomes something that we must muster up from within ourselves. But if Jesus Christ raised from the dead, 
if he breathes his spirit into us, if he baptizes us in the waters of baptism, then what can't happen? What's not possible? And I'm not saying that if you accept Jesus, then your life is made perfect and that's that. But we have access to the deepest of joys. That even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of evil, we have access to the divine peace of God. That's why when we speak peace to one another every single Sunday, that matters. We are declaring the peace of God. We have been reconciled to God. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the Father's great amen to the work of the Son. At the cross, all death, all shame was conquered. And the resurrection is God's way of saying, yes, that is true what happened. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that means that you and I, brothers and sisters, we have access to new life now. We stand with Mary, whose tears were turned into laughter. We stand with Thomas, whose unbelief is transformed into belief. You see, the resurrection doesn't mean that we simply putz around for a while until we go to heaven someday. No, the resurrection means that we have new life now. So I want you to think for a moment. Who in your life needs to hear this? Who is the Thomas that's in your life? The one who's demanding evidence? The one who's saying, I will not believe? Who is the Thomas in your life? Well, let's pray today, together, that Christ would make himself known to this friend. And that prayer might be answered immediately. I don't know. Jesus can make stones sing out his praises. We hear reports in the Muslim world of Jesus appearing to dreams to people. So this stuff happens. Jesus might move in miraculous and powerful ways. But when we pray these things, we also might, well, we need to be prepared to also wait for maybe eight days, maybe sometimes 80 years. But I think an example that we have today is bearing with our friends in the midst of their doubt, bearing with ourselves in the midst of our doubt. Because God's timing is different and sometimes very difficult. I think what we're being called to do is to be present with people, and to pray with them. Or perhaps you're, you're Thomas today. Maybe you're holding out for extraordinary evidence. But man, the scriptures, they are pretty weighty evidence. And I would love to talk with you sometime about how weighty this evidence is. Do you know what other weighty evidence we have? A healthy, Jesus-loving church is pretty remarkable to the world. Where else do you get to see something like that? And so if you feel the Holy Spirit moving in you, that's a seed of faith welling up. That is a miracle that is happening. And I would love to pray with you after the service about that. I know we don't do a lot of altar calls here in the Anglican tradition, but we can do altar calls if you want. Like, I would love to pray with you after the service. I would love to tell you that your sins are forgiven and that you are a child of God. So I don't know if, uh, if you were listening carefully to that opening colic that we had this morning, but I think it just resonates so well with this passage and it resonates with what I'm preaching this morning. So I invite you all to stand and we're going to say this again.
So I'll say this. Don't, don't feel like you need to follow along with me. But I just invite you to close your eyes or extend your hands um, in whatever way that might help you to receive from the Spirit of God this morning. Almighty and everlasting God, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please remain.